you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. You're recording? Yes. All right, so yes, we're doing Perlis Vaus again, and I'm going to continue pronouncing it like that because French does not exist, according to a tweet I saw yesterday. That's valid. I'm here for this. I mean, I think the tweet was talking about, like, the 11th century when French as we know it didn't exist, but I'm, I'm going to roll with it. French does not exist, therefore I can say Perlis Vaus however I want. I mean, you could technically say Perlis Vaus however you want anyway, but I also like the caveat that French does not exist. Well, if French does not exist, then the French do not exist, and then they can't take revenge on me for mangling their words. Indeed. Fair enough. All right. So we're on branch... Four. Four. All right. Before we jump in, I have some scholarship I want to share. <gasps> yes! We love the scholarship. This is about to become relevant. Oh boy. Okay. I'm here for it. So, we need to talk about dwarves. I'm hooked. All right. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> so what what about dwarves, Mac? Which part of dwarvish lore are we jumping into today? Well, we need to talk about Arthurian dwarves who are kind of their own thing. I am unfamiliar with Arthurian dwarves. I did not realize that Arthur had dwarves. Oh man, you need to read. Oh my god, if you haven't read Mort Darthur, we should absolutely like do that. Do that text. I read I read Part of the alliterative one? Did no, I it's miss? a different one. <gasps> I mean, I think there is a dwarf in the alliterative, Mort Darthur. I was like, did I miss the dwarf? But oh, like, no. the, the alliterative Mort is just, it just has the same title. I don't think it's actually the same as Mallory's Mort Darthur in yeah, any I, substantive no, way. I don't think I did Mallory's because I was doing it for Middle English, but it was more like a reading circle than it was an actual class. Yeah. It was just a group of us who wanted to do Middle English. Okay, we'll have to add it to the list. Anyway. Oh, man. Dude, we could... Mort to Arthur is so long and complicated that you could do, like, a whole podcast. Like, not an episode, like, a whole podcast on just on... reading through it. That's wild. What a text. Plus, think of all the episodes you could do on Mallory. Yes. Just regardless. Yeah, God. That, you know, that's actually something to file away. Maybe we should do a mini-series at some point where we just Ooh. read Mort Darthur chapter by chapter. Oh my gosh, I say yes. Yeah, maybe we can make it a Patreon reward. There we go. The point is, one of the like standards of Arthurian romances is that there are just dwarves. They're just around. Like, they're, they're just about. I mean, that makes sense. They're in the sagas. They're just about in the sagas. Like, like isn't that how Regan got his ring? Yes, but they're, they're more explicitly supernatural in the sagas. Okay. Okay, you may remember, you've read Chrétien de Troyes, right? Or Chris of Troy? Not explicitly. Like, as like a reference material, yes, but not a study in, in of itself. Okay, one of these days, you I need apologize. to take an Arthurian literature class. I, you know, I was going to in undergrad, and then I had too many credits, and it was my final semester, and I was dying. Have pity on me. I was trying to do a conlang class at the same time. It didn't work. I also had to drop that one. I was very disappointed. See if you can slip Dr. Armstrong a 20 to catch you up or something. You know, I really should. Point is, the reason I bring up Chris of Troy is that in The Night of the Cart, the his romance where he introduces the character of Lancelot, like to the mm -hmm. canon for the first time, mm -hmm. as his, is his OC, 
a large part of the plot is that Lancelot is he's, he's looking for Guinevere, who's been kidnapped, and he runs into a dwarf. And the dwarf is like, I will take you where you need to go, but you have to get off your horse and ride in my cart. Okay, weird caveat. Exactly. I... Exactly. And Lancelot is like, yes, fine. And a lot of the rest of the, of the thing follows from, like, it's so shameful that he rode in this cart. Why is it shameful? Because, because Arthurian romance, nothing horse? makes sense. Oh my gosh. Oh, how he debased himself sitting at a cart. I think the text does try and give some justification. Like, it was customary in that time and place for, like, prisoners bound for the gallows to ride in a cart. And so a knight in good standing shouldn't. Oh, good. You're finally awake. I understand (laughs) that reference, and I've not even played that game. I knew you would, and I know you haven't played it. Anyway, keep going. So yes, we it's it's so Chris of Troy had the ultimate opening Skyrim reference. Right, yes. But the point is there's never any explanation of like where this dwarf comes from, what his motivations are, what his deal is. He's just there. And he's like, I you have to ride in the cart. And that causes the rest of the plot to happen. Okay. And this is a recurring thing in Arthurian literature. We're talking it's not really Gimli dwarves, and it's not really Tyrian dwarves. Like, it's not like a mythical race of, like, mountain-dwelling miners, and it's not just, like, regular little people who just happen to be born that way. It's sort of, like, it's fey-ish. Like, there's some connection to the other world, but it's not explicit. We don't quite know. Interesting. So they're not quest givers, but they're, it's, they help you on your way to, it's like the hermitage that's always there. Like, you always have a hermitage that you can go to. You always have a dwarf that will let you, like, help you on your way. Yeah, it is a bit video game in, in that way. Like, you do just run into them, and they do things to drive the plot, even though their motivations are never, well, not never, but rarely clear. Right, right. Well, that's always like the weeping old woman or the weeping damsel who is also usually a quest giver. Yes. Because Arthur runs into those with the whole Mossy Mikel episode, where he slays the giant, and it's like the weeping lady. And then, I mean, Dagmar is also, I mean, she's the one explaining all the plot to whatever night she runs into. So we're seeing that in Prelice Faust, so. Right, but like the the inexplicableness of these dwarves and their motivations, which is also the the reason that we still say dwarves and we haven't like updated and started saying Arthurian, like little people or something, is because they are still kind of distinct. They're they're their own thing. Again, they're, they're not quite the same as just like, regular folk with a medical condition right exactly and then how do you like how do you define that stuff anyway and we as we've seen in a lot of like the wonders of the east we've got all these travel logs where it's very difficult to tell whether something real is being described or whether it's something mythological and supernatural that's being described how do you know you don't really know because our world and their world was very different in in some ways yeah but something i think underlines like just how unexplained a lot of this is left is in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, there is a a scribal error that Dr. Armstrong told us about when I took her Arthuriana class. Thank you Ooh. very much. Uh, I signed is, up for it. I tried. Also, she wasn't the one teaching it, which I was really bummed about. Oh, well, then that's 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 fair. That's fair. <laughs> She's like, the only. Like, if you skipped her Arthuriana class, I would judge you. Oh, no, that's totally understandable. But no, it was, I don't even remember who it was. It was probably like a PhD student or... Or an MA student who was doing it, but you know. 
There's a moment where a knight is approaching this holy thing and a giant and like a spectral hand appears out of nowhere and slaps him and knocks him over and then just vanishes. Oh my gosh, this is just a D&D campaign. All right. But uh, I, I think this was a, a, a scribal error in Mallory. Uh, the, the scribe read M-A-I-N hand as... French, French. It's from mm-hmm, translating mm-hmm. from old French as N A I N dwarf, and wrote a dwarf appeared out of nowhere, slapped the knight, <laughs> and knocked him over, and then disappeared. And that seemed like a completely reasonable thing because oh they're like gosh. that in Arthuriana. Like they're, they're not like usually that, that immediately <gasps> magic, but it's just like why'd they do that? I don't know. No one knows. We won't know. It's just that's what dwarves do. Yeah. How fascinating. They're almost like leprechauns. That's like the trickster folk. This is where I'm going with this. Ooh, ooh, okay. Right, and so what I've got here, the book, the source I'm I'm about to like give you some like summaries from, is Vernon Harward's or Harward or I don't know how to say this. It's a book called The Dwarfs. It's spelled with a F. Of the course, Dwarfs. because is this before Tolkien? I'm curious. I think it might be before Tolkien. Ah, uh, that would explain it. It's amazing how he basically single-handedly changed the spelling of that word. Yeah, 1958. So, yeah, bef- prob- I think that's before Tolkien's version was popularized. He may, have, probably, yeah. he may have written it by then. I don't remember his publication dates, but it was before, like, dwarves had Dwar- taken yeah. over. Yeah, that makes sense. Internet here. The Hobbit was published in 1937. So, by the time... This book was published. Tolkien's version was out there, but clearly it had not become the standard yet. But the dwarfs of Arthurian romance and Celtic tradition is the name of the book. Ooh. Okay, question for you. And I'm genuinely Mm -hmm. curious about this because oftentimes I feel like English lore and Celtic lore gets pushed together when, if we look at a lot of older English lore, a lot of that has more to do with Scandinavian roots. And of course, like mm-hmm. once we get into Arthuriana, that has Welsh roots, which has Celtic roots, etc, etc. So it can be pushed together quite well sometimes. But I'm curious as to how you would divide that. And should those things be pushed together? Because I think a lot of people, especially Americans, look at the British Isles, and they're like, oh yeah, that's all just one big culture. And having lived in Ireland, you do not go there. You do not dare go there because Irish culture is very different from English culture. I mean, they're they're very similar in the fact that like everyone wants a cup of tea, like, but who doesn't? That's just, that should be a human universal. But regardless, the history is very different and the lore is very different and the language is completely different. So how do we, like, how do we go about parsing that? And do you think that, our is it historiography is like the study of history or or how we create history anyway has that done a good job or do we have a lot of work to go back and split those up or parse that out i think there is a lot of work still to do but and i I can't obviously give a blanket answer because that's a pretty broad thing but of course in, in terms of like early medieval stuff while the like Celtic peoples and the Germanic peoples of the British Isles come from different roots, obviously. And, of course, by Germanic peoples, I mean the people who have also been called, like, the early English or the Anglo-Saxons or just the mm-hmm. English. Blah, blah, blah. 
Side note, England does not have a unified history. Like, I have to say that because we've we've come up with this great English myth over the course of forever. But England is is not like... There, first off, there is no, like, pure bloodline for any people group at all. But the whole idea that the English had one is ridiculous. Oh, absolutely. And just, just pointing that out because for some reason I feel like that that is still carried over, especially with people who, like, Americans who try and trace their lineage back to Europe. It's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, no, no, no. Like, the English is not, like, being English has a very short history mm-hmm. because the English have a short history compared to what came before and who those people were. But anyway, regardless, just needed to put that in there because it's an important caveat. Okay, so not only was there like intense cultural exchange between the, let's go ahead and keep calling them Anglo-Saxons for now, and the local peoples of the British Isles, because as the like invading and occupying force, they were actually way outnumbered. I've Mm -hmm. seen papers that estimated it as something like there was was one Anglo-Saxon for every 50 Britons. During the quote Anglo-Saxon period or the early English period, yeah. Again, yeah. We're, we're shifting terminologies, and I'm still ca- kind of catching up to it. Yeah. What is the term for that now? Because I think it's, it's. I think it's just early English. We're going with early English. Okay, gotcha. Because oh, there's just so much discourse about it. But anyway. Yeah, but not only is there like cultural exchange between the Celtic peoples of the British Isles with the early English and with, of course, the uh, Scandinavians. Because they were also, like, invading and trading and everything at the time. Even before that, there was a lot of cultural interchange on between the Celts and the Germanic peoples when they both lived on the continent. Yep. And so it's really difficult to untangle all of that uh, material. Mm-hmm. So... Like, you can find things that are like, okay, this is a cultural influence that was already present in early English society that traces back to their roots in modern-day Germany from when they lived on the continent before the invasion. And also, it's originally from Celtic culture. Like, that can happen. Right, right. Things can be concurrent. Yeah. So, it's really difficult to untangle what cultural influences come from what because not again, not only did was there a lot of interchange once they were occupying the same archipelago, but there was interchange before that on the continent, and they ultimately both come from Indo-European roots. So there's that. So like it's it's really difficult to untangle Celtic and English. But besides all that, this is a French Arthurian romance, which right. means that it traces back to Brittany and mm-hmm. the Bretons who carried the original Arthurian stories over to France, uh, were fleeing the invading Saxons. So, like, that doesn't even apply. They're just Celtic. Right, right. <sighs> the Celts became the French, and then the Eng- like the Germans became English. Anyway. Yeah, and of, of course, there's some discussion as to, like, okay, but they're, they're also deal- going to deal with Germanic influence, because if they're in France, then they're dealing with the Franks and the Normans, right. both mm-hmm. of whom are Germanic people, so... Mm-hmm. So then what? Everything's then where do we a go? big tangle, is what we're saying. <laughs> yep. Always, always. All right, but we're 20 minutes in, and I haven't told you about this book. Oh, yes. Keep going. The book about dwarves. Yes. All right. So there's been some scholarship suggesting that the ubiquitous dwarves of Arthurian romance are just patterned after the genuine historical practice of aristocrats having court dwarves, mm-hmm. i.e. actual little people who are hired to be professionally short for some kind of entertainment value. Yeah. There's a lot of crossover between the court jester and the court 
dwarf. I- I'd expressed some skepticism about, like, how funny could that possibly be? But apparently there was a scene in The Wolf of Wall Street where it's still considered funny, so I guess we can't judge. I mean... Or we can, but we can't judge them against modern people. Right. There's also the scene in Elf. I didn't see Elf. Um, where, I mean, it is it is Peter Dinklage. I actually didn't see Wolf of Wall Street either. I've just heard it. That's fair. Well, it's Buddy the Elf, who's played by Will Ferrell, I think, who meets Peter Dinklage's character. And I don't remember. It doesn't matter what his character's name is. But he's like, ooh, an elf. And he gets he gets very excited by the idea that, that this person is an elf. And obviously, that is horribly offensive to this guy who's trying to run a business meeting. And he's like, oh, you're an angry elf. And so Peter Dinklage's character climbs up on the table and tackles Will Ferrell's character, Buddy. So... It's, I can envision Peter Dinklage doing this, and I kind of love it. Right? Like, it's it's interesting because it's simultaneously poking fun at the idea of a little person doing this, while at the same time recognizing that it's offensive to use those terms about this group of people. So... It's weird because it's like, aha, yes, we're acknowledging that this isn't great, but we're still going to use it for comedic value. And at that point, like, how do you how do you engage with that offensive humor? It touches on something that I think is incredibly valuable, but it's difficult to talk about when people get incredibly sensitive about it. But at the same time, you want to be sensitive to the things that need sensitivity. So, but anyway, there is a theory that uh, the Arthurian dwarf is based on like the court dwarf. But interesting. There's another school of thought that points to the presence of dwarves in Celtic myth and suggests they're borrowed from that source like so much else in the Arthurian canon. Right. This does mean, as you alluded to earlier, that the Arthurian dwarf could be cognate with leprechauns because they they would both be traced back to the same original source. Yeah, the same creature. Wow. And beyond that, it's actually not really clear how widespread the custom of having court dwarves really was. Like, they existed it was a thing but maybe not to the degree we imagine a lot of that is actually more based on the romances than on historical evidence interesting because we read about them in the romances we're like okay yeah this is a thing that happened but evidence for them actually existing is like it's there but not it's not as common as you'd think well this is when i always like to bring up the idea of romeo and juliet because they're both incredibly young, and it's like, yes, that's why it's a tragedy. They're idiots. They're kids. They're kids who fall in love and die due to terrible circumstances. It wouldn't hit as hard if this were adults in their 20s making these choices, you know? But no, you're young in love and blind. Like, the fact that they are as young as they are is not an indicator that, oh, everyone at this period got married really young. No, it's a factor that this was also really weird to them. And I think we overlooked that. Now, I'm going to have to go on a, on, a, on a slight tangent. Yes. All right. So, you know, lots of Celtic stories about like the wee folk or the whatevers. Yes. They are either like under the ground or under the sea or in some way like yes. beneath. Yes. Well, that's where we get the fairy mounds, the fairy hills. And there's also a completely like separate in origin idea of like, I guess natural philosopher would be the word of natural philosophers at the time who... We're trying to figure out, like, hey, what's this Earth thing we live on? (laughs) That's a good question. Yeah, and since apparently this has been in the discourse lately, because I I had the bad fortune of looking at Twitter on Columbus Day. Oof. In the medieval era, no, we did not think the Earth was flat. We knew it was a sphere. Thank you. 
Why do we always have to keep doing this every single year? I know. Also, Columbus was a genocidal rapist who was condemned in his own time because he was already so over-the-top horrible compared to the people of the 15th century. The people who did the Spanish Inquisition looked at what he did in Hispaniola and were like, that is too much. We shouldn't have a holiday for him. But the point is, they knew the world was a sphere. And they also knew that if they went north from where they were in Europe, uh, it got colder and colder and colder. And eventually it was too cold for them, for like humans to live. Yes. It's like even, I think even the peoples of the Arctic Circle don't really go to the North Pole. It's just too much. No, no. Yeah, and, like, the Sami people are nomadic for a reason. Yeah. And those are the, the reindeer-herding folk who live in the far, far north of Scandinavia. I, I was thinking of the Inuit, but yeah. And they figured, okay, also, when it goes south, it gets hot. And we have to assume that if you go further and further south, eventually it'll get too hot for people to live. Now, they knew they lived on a sphere, and they knew that the pole was in the middle of, like, the cold area, which they called the frigid zone. Mm-hmm. And so they figured that the hot area, which they called the torrid zone, yes. like they knew it went around the equator of the sphere. Right. And since the very middle was too hot for people to live, that meant that the other half of the sphere was completely inaccessible. Oh. If you want to look this, this up, and you can find macrobian zonal maps in a lot of Old English uh, texts and a lot of medieval like cod- codices in general. I love that idea. It's pretty cool. Perfect D&D setting, I'm just saying. I know, I was I was actually thinking that uh, when, when, whenever Marginal we get, worlds. Yeah, whenever yes. we get back to putting together like our setting. Yeah. But the point is, so they called that other half of the world that they figured, that they assumed they couldn't access the Antipodes, which we still kind of say, like that's still like what we call like Oceania and Australia. Like it yes. survived into the modern era. Yes, that's true. And at some point, the reason I'm bringing this up is at some point in like, legends and mythology and literature Uh the idea of like fairy people who live under the ground and (gasps) people in the antipodes who live on the opposite side of the earth got a little bit crossed in someone's head it's totally intuitive it makes total sense you just burrow under the hot part which is something that we as humans can't do to pop up and be the fey folk and so this resulted in chris of troy introducing a character called bilis b-i-l-i-s the king of the Antipodes, who was also a dwarf. Oh. And uh, Harward here is like, okay, Belis, which oh. also might sound like a familiar name for Tolkien uh-huh. fans out there, is probably based on the Welsh mythological figure Beli, B-E-L-I, uh-huh. who also makes an appearance in Geoffrey of Monmouth as uh, Belinus, by the way. Oh, Okay. Uh, and he's he's a euhemerized figure. Like, he is mm-hmm. uh, originally a Celtic god of some sort who's been turned into, like, a different, like, a, they're, they're making him into a historical figure. Right. Probably linked with other Celtic stories about, and this is something that Harward drops a bunch of examples of, wealthy dwarven kingdoms under the sea. What an or idea. And he's also usually, depending on the myth, the their relationship is different, but he's almost always related, like familially related to another figure, Bran the Blessed, who more people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Another euhemerized divinity, probably a sea god of some kind. Mm-hmm. And the figure of the Fisher King from Arthuriana, Arthurian literature, is widely accepted to be inspired by Bran the Blessed. So his brother in Perla's Spouse is Peles. Yeah, that's, that's why I'm dwarves. bringing him up. 
Oh, yeah. it's come yeah, full yeah, circle. Exactly. Exactly. So that th- is this so guy. Cool. So when we have Pelis, king of the lower folk, in Perlis Vals, it's from this guy. Interesting. Wow. One of the reasons that we link the Fisher King with Bran the Blessed is because in most texts where he occurs, his name is Bronn. Okay. It's just switching the A for an O. Right. Although Perlis Vals calls him Messios for some reason. Probably some Latin derivation. Who knows? I, th- I think it's related to Messiah because he, the Perlis Vals author is going hard on the, like, Christianity. That's true. Christianity and severed heads. What a pairing. I feel like that goes together more often than you'd think in the medieval period. I would agree. I'm also thinking of um, John the Baptist. Yes. So. That comes up. Oh, great. Not in this, but like in the, in the, in the text, not in the thing I'm, I'm talking about. Fair enough. Basically, summarize, the King Pelis that we meet in this text is probably based on the King of the Dwarves from Celtic mythology. And a lot of the like Arthurian dwarf is probably also based on those same stories, which is why they're like kind of their own thing. Like they're old Celtic figures that have been kind of filtered through this courtly romance genre. Uh, and that's why, you know, they're, they're not like Gimli, like the Scandinavian inspired dwarves we always think of, but they're also mm-hmm. not Tyrion. Like they're not just regular people who happen to be short. Right. Like they're, they're this other kind of vaguely fey thing. Interesting. Interesting. Because they do become a staple. It's, it's interesting that we see these same characters pop up over and over and over again to the point that they're recognizable by their actions and their archetypes, but not by their name. Mm-hmm. Because we keep seeing these things and technically it's the same character, but we would just say, oh, no, it's just that figure. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's literally the same person. It's like, oh, that's Odin again. A lot of that's just because it, all this stuff rattled around in oral tradition for centuries before it ever got written down. Yep. That's definitely the case with most of the Arthurian material that we're pulling out of French tradition, because again, it's all from the Bretons <laughs> and they were telling their stories orally. Like they were, there was a period where there were lots of Breton storytellers and singers like were just wandering around France and they were doing that for hundreds of years before anyone started writing it down. Yep. All right. That's so cool. All right, and the reason I wanted to make sure we hit all that is because, like I alluded to, there are a lot of dwarves that we're going to see. Oh, I'm so excited! When I was reading Mort Arthur a couple of years ago, when I uh, when I was taking an Arthuriana class, the constant appearance of dwarves stuck out to me, and one of the things I kept thinking was, there should be a television show that's based on Mort Arthur, and... Every time there is an unnamed dwarven character, it should just be Warwick Davis in increasingly ridiculous disguises. <laughs> I and would love that. It should be completely unacknowledged. Yes, 100%. And so as our unnamed dwarves start showing up in this text, I'm just going to refer to them as Warwick Davis. Sounds good. <laughs> now that we've gotten all that, yes. it's time for me to finally start the actual text. Woohoo! Here we go. <laughs> all right. So... Previously on Perilous Vows. King Arthur is shamed by his peers for having retired from his adventuring ways and decides to go to the Chapel of St. Augustine to seek guidance. During his journey, he meets a young woman named Dagmar, or whom we named Dagmar, who tells him a story about a knight named Perilous Vows, or Percival. Percival grew up in a noble household but was never told what a knight was despite all of his paternal uncles having been knights. 
Upon learning what a knight was, the very next day he rode out into the forest and found a couple of knights fighting and immediately killed one with a javelin. By accident, because he did not believe that a knight's armor could be penetrated. After having put a target on his back by committing murder, he fled to King Arthur's court where he was knighted and then immediately left. He then proceeded to the court of the Fisher King where he witnessed the Holy Grail but failed to ask the question of who it is who is served from said Grail. For inexplicable reasons, failing to ask this question has plunged the entire land into chaos and madness. So just a regular chivalric romance then. After having been given this backstory, King Arthur is told by a disembodied voice that he has to hold court and reassemble the Knights of the Round Table, which he does. Once they are gathered at his castle at Penzance, three damsels arrive, whom we named Groucha, Chica, and Harpa. Groucha, who does most of the talking, delivers to them a shield, which will be retrieved by the finest knight in the world, and a hound who will cheerfully greet only the finest knight in the world. She tells the court to be on the lookout for said knight and then leaves. After having left King Arthur's court, Groucha, Chica, and Harpa meet Sir Gawain, who had not attended the gathering at Penzance. He escorts them through a series of hazards in the forest and then is directed towards the castle of the widowed lady, Percival's childhood home, where Percival's mother is besieged by the Lord of the Fens, and the brother of the knight whom Percival killed with the javelin. Sir Gawain, by participating in a tournament, or as we called it, a LARP, is able to win a year's truce for Iglaise, aka Percival's mother, aka the widowed lady of the Vales of Camelot. They party, and then Gawain continues on. Alright, so, chapter four. Yes. Gawain leaves Iglaise's castle, Iglaise's the good knight's mother. The morning after their big hooray we have a truce party, and that evening arrives at a noble hall that is quote, set in the middle of a great river. I assume this means on an island, and not like floating. Although, that would be pretty dope. Gowan approaches and sees Warwick Davis, sitting on one of the pillars of the drawbridge. <gasps> yeah! The following conversation takes place. What's up, Gowan? How do you know my name? I was at the tournament. Listen, that's not important. What is important is this. The lady of the house is wise, noble, hot as fuck, 20 years old, and home alone for the night, for the lord of the house is away. Uh-huh. And who is this lord? He is called Marin the Jealous of Castle Gomoret. I will go and tell my lady that the good Sir Gawain has come, and to make merry. Ooh, merry. <laughs> To be clear, that last line is a direct quote. He's just like, yeah, my lord is called Marin the Jealous. I'm going to go tell his wife, who's alone, that you're coming and to make Mary. I feel like, no wonder he's jealous. This is this is a pretty obvious cuckolding maneuver, but okay. Gowan is surprised by this pleasant welcome, because due to some unspecified past experiences, we are told he does not trust dwarves. I mean, I feel like that's reasonable within the expectations of Arthurian dwarves, but otherwise would be a pretty gross overstatement. Nevertheless, he does not object, and Warwick Davis goes back inside Castle Gomoret to talk to his lady. Uh, the lady does not seem to get a name. In my notes, I just call her Mrs. The Jealous, but Mrs. The Jealous. if you want to give her a better name, I'm all ears. Um, I mean, I don't have... Wait, what's the... Um, how about Jezebel? All right, Jezebel it is. Warwick tells Jezebel that Sir Gawain is looking for a knight's lodging. 
She's worried because her husband Marin is aware of Gowan. And what the person who left notes in my copy of the Bryant translations refers to as Gowan's, quote, rep with the ladies. <laughs> you know, we have established in Gowan and the Great Knight that he does have a reputation with the ladies. This is a pre-established fact. Yes, that is part of his character. I just wanted to quote that because the person who left notes in this, I'm really enjoying because a lot of the time it's just like a summary or like a, a rephrase. Like there's a whole like set piece later on and they've just written next to it, Grizzly. But Warwick assures her that there's nothing to worry about. She welcomes Gawain in and it is indeed fine. They have a nice dinner. And though Gawain does check her out a little, he remembers his manners and behaves like a gentleman for the rest of the evening. All right. His actual reasoning, as provided by the narration, he's clearly on some kind of mystical quest, and so he shouldn't f*** around. Like, he's aware of this. He's like, ah, genre savvy here. I'm on a religious quest, and so I probably shouldn't sleep with this woman. He learned from his Green Knight episode. Very possibly. (laughs) We don't know which came first. However, I'm gonna bet. (laughs) I'll make an educated guess here. After dinner, Gawain retires to the guest room. Warwick accompanies him and offers to, quote, lie down here at the foot of your bed and comfort you until you are asleep. Okay. Gawain apparently finds this completely normal and thoughtful rather than weird. Is this a cultural thing? Because I I feel like, because Ruth does a very similar thing in the Bible with Boaz, like she lays at his feet. And sleeps at his feet. And so I, I feel like this has a little bit more cultural relevance than we understand, but it's still weird. I guess it's if, if you're in a culture that's not as big on privacy as we are, which is most of them. And if you're in a technology level that doesn't have heating, maybe you just want someone in your bed for like warmth. I think it's also you want a servant at hand to call upon. That's probably also true. That's my guess. Fun side note, that's where the phrase three dog night, like the band, comes from. Yeah! Is a really cold night, is a three dog night, because you want three dogs in your bed to keep you warm. Yes, I love that phrase, that's one of my favorites. It's a good one. But anyway, apparently Gowan finds this thoughtful, because he offers Warwick great thanks for this. Nice! But this is all a ruse, because the real plan is that Warwick Davis just wants to know when Gowan is asleep. And as soon as Gowan is asleep, he sneaks out and takes a rowboat down to the fishing lodge where Marin the Jealous is staying. Marin is asleep on a couch. So Warwick lights, quote, a fistful of candles, then runs up to him. How, how much is a fistful of candles? Just says a fistful of candles. I like the image, though. Yeah, I, mm, I feel like... In my head, he's just going like full Wolverine, like got a candle in between all of his knuckles, but I don't know how accurate that would be or easy. That seems difficult. Yeah, I was imagining like grabbing on a bunch of them like a torch and waving it around. Ooh, that's good too. He does seem to be both behaving and now entering in a very chaotic fashion, and I feel like that fits. True. Okay. So, dialogue. Are you asleep? What? What? What's happening? The rest of this dialogue is composed of direct quotations. You do not sleep by Sir Gawain. What, what do you know about that? A lot. I've just left him asleep in your hall. Arm in arm with your wife, I do believe. What? But I forbade her ever to give Sir Gawain lodging. While Warwick is working on getting Marin the Jealous back to Castle Gomeret, the dawn comes and Jezebel notices Warwick's absence and makes some inferences. Uh-oh. Can we get another conversation? Here we go. 
Sir Gawain, Warwick has set us up. Marin, my husband, is on his way right now to punish me, and we didn't even do anything. Hey, yeah, we didn't do anything. Left unspoken, he totally wanted to. So you'll protect me, right? Yeah, let me just uh, get my armor and find a good ambush spot. Pretty much the second Gowan is off stage, Marin the Jealous bursts into the hall full of accusations. And at this point, I should provide a content warning. Content warning, domestic violence. If this is something that you find particularly disturbing and don't want to listen to, you'll want to skip the next two minutes or so. You should be fine if you go to around the 39-minute mark. Anyway. Marin, not believing his wife's protestations of innocence, strips her to her undergarments and drags her out into the forest, where he cuts switches from some nearby trees and begins beating her. Jeez. I know. It's rough. There's a content warning. The reason I said that. Yeah. Gawain, hearing her cries, decides it's time to intervene and burst out of the woods. We get another exchange. Uh, Alright, so Gawain's like, I swear! Nothing happened. Marin says, Then you won't object to trial by combat. Gowan says, Get your horse and lance. Let's do it. Uh, the two knights get all set up for a joust, but as soon as it starts, Marin swerves away from Gowan, impales his wife with his lance, <gasps> and gallops back to his hall, Warwick running behind him. What the heck? I know. It's rough. What an asshole. Gawain chases Marin on horseback, trampling Warwick to death in the process, by the way. But Marin is able to get into his hall and have the drawbridge raised and gate bolted behind him. He then shouts down at Gawain that this is all Gawain's fault somehow and he will have his revenge. Bruh. I know, right? No. Men. Like, okay, if it's all Gawain's fault, why'd you hit your wife? Gawain made him do it. Oh my gosh, men. Yeah, I know. It's it's like right on that line of like, that is completely insane that you do that. And also, I can kind of see someone doing that. No, I can. Like, yeah, no, I, I can men. definitely. Yeah. Oof. Gawain, quote, had no desire to argue with him. So he heads back into the forest. There, quote, his heart filled with grief and anger, unquote. He collects the body of Jezebel and places it in a chapel outside the castle walls. So it'd be safe from animal interference until someone came along to do a proper burial. He then continues on his way. I mean, that's sweet of him. Yeah, I mean, it's just something. It's nice. Yeah. To those of you who skipped ahead, welcome back. There will be allusions later in the text to the events that you skipped over, but hopefully that won't be too much of a problem. After riding for some time, Gowan encounters, quote, a knight coming towards him in a most curious manner. He was riding backwards, with the reins of his horse tied round his chest, his shield upside down, his lance the wrong way round, and his hauberk and greaves hanging round his neck. Let me guess, he's a walking metaphor. He is, or probably, because he hears Gowan coming, but can't see him on account of being backwards on his horse. And he calls out, and now we have our next dialogue. Please don't hurt me. I am the Knight Coward. What the f- I'm not gonna hurt you. Gowan rides around so the two are facing each other. Oh, hi. Hi. So, whose knight are you? Uh, Grouchus. 
Oh, I know her. So you won't hurt me? Again, no. At this point, the knight coward notices Gowan's shield, and the following is a direct quote. Sire, I know who you are. I will dismount and ride properly now, and put my armor on the right way round. For you are Sir Gowan, I know. For you alone, where to win that shield. Helpful. So helpful. How does he know that it's not the actual, like, the night before he won the shield? Or did, like, Groucho tell him? Groucho probably told him. It seems like a lot of people have, like, a list somewhere of, like, oh, this knight will get this shield at this time. So they're just, like, aware. That's really handy. Yeah. They do a lot of recognizing each other by shields, but they do also occasionally switch shields. And sometimes it's clear, like in this case, that, like, someone knew ahead of time that you you were going to have that shield. So it's like the knight gossip column. Yeah. But prophetic. Why does it have to be prophetic, though? Like, Groucho, like, he and, like, Gawain and Groucho split, and then he runs into this knight later after he's won the shield because Groucho was there when he won the shield. Groucho could have just told him. That's true. But. Oh, no. First, okay. the knight coward says, you alone were to win that shield, implying that when he heard about it, it was in the future. Second, <sighs> Groucho's mentioned this guy before. This is her knight. Who can't find her. Oh, he hasn't talked no. to her recently. You're right. I had it set up so perfectly. And then you ruined it with the book's own internal logic. Oh. Which is amazing considering how little internal logic this book has. No, I'm very impressed. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Anyway. Sir Gowan helps the knight coward sort out his armor. But almost at once, a third knight gallops onto the scene. Huzzah. His shield is quartered black and white. Bryant calls him the Motley Knight, but this may be a deliberate choice. The appropriate heraldic description of his shield is party per cross, argent, and sable, so Evans may have been closer to the original in calling him the Party Knight. <laughs> nice! The Party Knight. Everybody loves the Party Knight. Yeah, right, you'd think, but unfortunately the Party Knight is much less fun than his name implies. Oh man, come on. Uh, it seems that he passed by Marin the Jealous's Hall shortly after Gowan left, got a highly edited account of events. I'm sure he did. And is now here to challenge Gowan to a duel in revenge for causing Jezebel's death. <gasps> Marin! I want to kill this guy. Can Gawain go back and kill him? For me? It would be nice, wouldn't it? it but would he's inside his nice. castle. He can't get in. <sighs> Gotta see besiege him. That's the whole point. I guess. But this is our next dialogue. I'm actually still pretty broken up about that, but her death is definitely not on me. And the party knight says, direct quote, I cannot! I want you dead! Fine. Trial by combat it is, then. Sir Gawain, I will not be able to help you on account of my general uselessness. Did, did I f***ing ask for help? I got this. <laughs> I love this entire exchange! Aww. It's again... Pretty direct. Let me let me. Yes, pull the pull the the actual text because I am enticed. So what he actually says is the knight coward says, "I hope you are not relying on me. Please do not think that I will be of any help." And Gawain says, "I have accomplished many things without you, and I will do so now." These are some sick burns, man. Wow. I'm rephrasing, but the sense is the same. It's just like I didn't ask. I know you can't help. You're clearly useless. You're completely useless, you dolt. So, okay, so how do we place this within both Arthurian chivalry and, I guess, older forms of 
being a warrior because we have a good example of unfirth in mm-hmm. Beowulf as someone who is supposed to take up a mantle and then doesn't. And then Beowulf just like verbally beats him raw and makes fun of him. And that again goes back to like, how well can you bandy about with your words, poetry and being able to insult somebody and having an insult war or like a rap battle is very important as part of being a warrior. So we have that tradition again, passed on here, but in a slightly different, more comedic way. So when did when did that fall out of fashion? Or was 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 that used in more like higher art? Or at this point, has it just become so diluted that it's just like a trope? I don't know how often it occurs in the romances. I know it doesn't fully fall out of fashion until the modern era. Right. At which point it arguably just changes into different forms that we recognize now. Because, like, they were doing flighting or fluting or however you pronounce it in Scotland up until the early modern period, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So it it might just be, like, it it kind of stopped being part of the aristocratic culture. And Mm -hmm. so the romances don't so much do it. It's just, like, a quick jab rather than a serious back and forth. Yeah, it's your your quippy quote for, for the argument. Yeah, but they do still have the idea that, like, they're always challenging each other's manliness in various ways. Because... Because everything's a measuring contest. Yeah. Toxic chivalry, I think, is what you called boop, it boop, a couple boop. episodes ago. Yes. We're really going to have to make that a little sound blur, aren't we? Well, I mean, I can just drop in the problematic patriarchy. Thing. Yeah. Where was I? Okay, yeah. They fight. They fight. Of course And when it's clear Gawain is going to win, the party knight surrenders. In return, for Gawain granting him mercy, the party knight swears fealty to Gawain and promises that his unnamed lord, whoever that is, it, like he just says, my lord, whoever, uh, will become Gawain's vassal. I thought he served Groucha. No, no, this is the party knight. Oh, the party knight, yes. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so he's like, oh, you've beat me in exchange for not killing me. My lord will become your vassal. And Gawain's like, okay. And then the party knight leaves. That was his whole deal. He just come in like, ah, fight. Oh, you're better than me. Bye. Can you do that? Apparently. I thought lords were inherently above knights. Yeah, it's kind of unclear why the party knight thinks he can do that and make promises on behalf of his lord. Maybe they've got a special relationship. They were roommates. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh, they were roommates. Anyway, ignore me and my terrible vine references. After the party night leaves, Gawain and the night coward have a chat. And this is our final dialogue for this chapter. Yeah. Man, I'm glad nobody like that's coming after me. I would be scared shitless. You really don't seem big on the fighting part of this gig, huh? Nothing but ill comes of war. I have never ever been wounded, except for that one time I ran into a branch. But you're covered in scars. I'm definitely going to pass on that. Anyhow, I'm off to find Groucha. Hey, before you go, what's the deal with that sling she wears? That is the hand with which she served from the Holy Grail. She has sworn not to hold anything else in it until she returns to the court of the Vizier King. So, <laughs> listeners and Zo- <laughs> Sorry, uh, what listeners can't see is that Zoe holds her nose to do that voice and it makes me laugh. Yes. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Ooh! <laughs> What listeners and Zoe may remember is that Gowan was supposed to ask why Groucho was wearing a sling, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. And now we find out that, like, her arm's not actually hurt. She's just made a vow, and, like, she wants people to ask her about it. Wow, fishing for compliments much? 
Yeah, exactly. It seems like a very, I don't know, teenager thing to do. Like, I'm going to wear this thing and I want people to ask. Yeah. I want people to ask about why I'm wearing this thing. I'm going to make it look really dramatic. And then that way people people ask me about it. Like, oh, I, yeah. I cut my knee really badly on this hike. So instead of wearing pants, I'm going to wear shorts so that everybody can see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of stuff in this text makes me think like, are you emo teenagers? Like, what's going on here? And that's one of them. Is like, I, w- I want you to ask why I'm wearing this. Well, to be fair, I mean, a lot of individuals at this period who would be taking on these roles were teenagers. Yeah, that's true. We're not clear on how old any of these people are. Especially since the, the timeline is very confused in this whole text. Yes. I also really want to know, like, how the Cowardly Knight became a knight, if he's such a coward. Because that feels like... Like, that feels like a really fun backstory, again, for a D&D character. Mm-hmm. Like, someone whose character, like, be, did something really good on accident, and they were the only one, like, they were the one, like, left standing in the middle, like, uh, because they just didn't know what was going on. And then, like, the Lord found them and was like, you've done it! And then they became a knight, and now they have to avoid going on quests, and that's their entire purpose as a character. That sounds familiar. I think that's part of the plot of that movie, Ants. But I have never seen that movie. Oh, you should see the movie. It came out at the same time as A Bug's Life. It's the other movie about uh, CGI ants. There we go. Uh, anyway. There was no <laughs> studio like fight there, I'm sure. But yeah, that would be a good idea for a, for a D&D character. He just really doesn't want to go on any adventures, thank you. Yes. Anyway, the night coward then leaves, but not before giving his lance to Sir Gawain. Because... Sir Gawain broke his in that fight earlier, and the Coward Knight is like, I don't need one. <laughs> I'm not going to use it. Yes. And going on our, like, lance metaphors, the Knight Coward ends his appearance by symbolically emasculating himself. You know? And giving his masculates to Sir Gawain. Masculates. <laughs> that checks out. Oh, the world of metaphor. Going to stretch this metaphor as far as it'll go. Oof. Gawain continues on for a while. Then, around sunset, he encounters yet another knight. Uh, this one is galloping through the forest with a goddamn spear through his chest. I have been rendered speechless. Okay. Yeah, I could tell. <laughs> what, he's not decapitated? Like, what's going on here? Nope. We're, we're, skip- we're, we're skipping- <laughs> like You can't ride while you're decapitated. You can hold obviously. your head! The green knight did it! No, he's not dead. He just has a spear in his chest. Oh, okay, alright. Well, it didn't pierce his lung, apparently. No, this is not the last time we'll see this, is occasionally knights just show up with mortal wounds, but they're like, yeah, I'm I'm going off somewhere to die, but, like, let me tell you first, like, what my deal is. All right. So, his explanation is, Sire, I went to bury the lady whom you bore to the chapel, but Marin came and attacked me, and wounded me as you see. I had just dug a grave with my sword, which sounds hard. (laughs) I like the dedication to a knightly burial. Yeah. When he seized the body from me and abandoned it to the wild beasts. Now I am going to find the hermit who lives in this forest so I can make confession, for I know that I have not long to live. The wound lies close to my heart, but I shall die the more at ease for having shown you the grief I have come to on your account. How did he know that Gawain... And also, if this other knight can bury her, then why didn't... why didn't Gawain? He's abdicating his duty! Yeah, I don't know why Gowan didn't do it. Uh, 
it's That's possible this is again like the the assumed gossip that happens in in romances and sagas often people just know stuff without like us being told why they know stuff it's just like yeah there's gossip going on Think, news travels the plot armor is too strong or it's possible that Marin yelled something while he was fighting that's true. Weird. But that happens. The speared knight rides off. That's the whole th- in- encounter. Uh, and Gowan continues his journey. Okay. A little while later, he sees, quote, a most handsome and splendid castle. There happens to be an aged knight practicing his falconry nearby. So Gowan asks what castle this is. He provides the following. This is the castle of the haughty maiden. The haughty maiden. Oh, dear. Yeah, I think... Hold on. I think Evans has a wilder name for this castle. Give me a sec. So Evans refers to the maiden herself as the proud maiden, but the castle is castle... Now I see why I didn't write this one down, because I can't pronounce this. Oh boy. Do we have to type it? Yeah. (laughs) And then I gotta gotta do it? I'm pretty sure you'll do it better than me, but I think it's just French for haughty. Probably. Oh, that's a terrible word. Uh... Wow. Like, honestly, looking at it, it looks like Ogre Lux, which is not what it is, but it sounds like a really interesting, like, perfume brand for ogres. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Brain's going all over the place. Ogelu? That's my best guess. I don't know. There's an X in there. There's a couple L's. Yeah, for, for the listeners, it's spelled O-R-G-U-E-L-L-E-U-X. I don't like it. I don't either. French is difficult. It looks cool, but then as soon as you try let's go like, how do you say that? Like, you just nope right out around. of it, yeah. But anyway, this is that castle where the haughty maiden lives. The custom of the castle, because in Arthurian literature, there's always a custom of the castle. Yes. Is that neither the maiden nor her retainers will deign to ask any knight his name, because presumably they are so far beneath her that it doesn't matter who they are. What is it? Gaslight gatekeep girl boss. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Honestly, yes. Fits. There we go. We're going with it. The, the, the maiden in question is the fairest in all the land. because they Of all course. Are. Of course. There is no lord of the castle because the maiden has never married, nor had any interest in any man whom she had not heard was the finest knight in the world. Well, that rules Gawain out. Gawain decides this sounds good. Fine. And heads into the castle. He's welcomed in, given a nice coat to wear after he's changed out of his armor. Then the haughty maiden herself comes to see him and offers a tour of the chapel. Sure, why not? Sure. The chapel is quite a sight, richly adorned and lovely. Prominently featured are four tombs. And on the right-hand wall, Gowan notices, quote, three recesses in the wall, all set about with gold and precious stones, at the back of which could be seen the bright gleam of candles with crosses and amulets, and they smelt sweeter than balsam. Interesting. Like, there are little, like, shrines set way back in, like, recesses in the walls. Ooh, that actually sounds really lovely. I would like to state here for our listeners that having tombs in chapels is not weird. No, that's where they belong. Yes. If you go into basically any old medieval cathedral or church, if you look at the floor, there are usually like big tiles where it looks like a knight is sleeping or not, or just little plates. Those are usually tombs. Like you are walking over tombs. That's just a part of the format of a medieval chapel or church. Yeah. It's a great honor to be buried there. Yes. 
And so, like, since this is the Haughty Maiden, this is her castle, obviously, she's like, I have prepared these tombs. Yes. And she wants to talk about these tombs. She indicates them and says, all right, this this whole bit really needs to be given in full rather than summarized. I did not type it up, which means I have to read her voice. (laughs) Three of the tombs, sire, have been made for the three finest knights in the world. And the fourth is for me. One of the knights... This is so presumptuous of her! Oh my gosh! I like that you're already finding this weird, because it gets worse. Oh no, okay, keep going. One of the knights is named Gawain, and another is Lancelot of the Lake, and each of them I love deeply. But the third, whose name is Percival, I love more than either of them. And those three- I know that this is a terrible voice, by the way. I'm trying to just pitch it up, but I think I just sound like a little boy. (laughs) No, you're good. Keep going. Roll with it. Own it. In those three recesses which you can see, relics have been placed out of love for them. But look, I will show you what I would do to them if they were here. And if I cannot do it to the three together, I shall do it to one or two of them. (gasps) I want you to guess what she's doing. What will she do if they were there? Future Mac chiming in for the listeners. I would recommend as a let's say, theme song for this woman. The Bare Naked Lady's song, Straw Hat and Old Dirty Hank. I put you up up on a pedestal so high. Um, mm, I, mm, I don't like, I don't like the options. She's either gonna, like, show how she honors them in some way, or, like, she's gonna lean down and kiss the tombs or something. I'm trying not to get, like... Like, this is still a medieval text. hmm Is she gonna... Ah, oh, this is weird. Also, like, she's never met these people before. This is, this is nope. the same as, like, someone who's obsessed with a celebrity obsessing over them and being like, Yeah, we're gonna get married one day. It's like, no, yeah. no, you're not. Yeah, run with that obsessed with a celebrity idea. Ooh. Think about someone who's really, really, really obsessed with a celebrity. What might they do? Like, what might they be planning? I don't know, kidnapping them and then, like, collecting a lock of their hair or, 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 I don't know. I don't want to go into necrophilia territory because that's just, I feel like that's a lot even for a medieval text. That's more like an ancient Roman text. She reached towards the recesses and pulled on a golden bolt which was fixed in the wall, and thereupon a steel blade, sharper than a razor, crashed down and closed the three holes. Yeah, she's got like a guillotine trap (gasps) on those little shrines set in the walls. Thus will I cut off their heads when they go to worship the relics in the recesses. Then I shall take their bodies and place them in this tomb with much honor, richly shrouded. For I can have no joy of them alive, but joy I shall have of them dead. And when it shall please God that I die, I shall be laid to rest in the fourth coffin, in the company of the three good knights. Zoe has a look of horror on her face for the listeners. This bitch crazy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she's, she wants to collect them, but dead. Oh no, 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 no. Ooh. You know, it's a good thing she doesn't ask knights their names. I know, right? This, that's a really <laughs> this, good this conceit. Is not 
Like, I'm looking for three specific knights. Also, I never bother to ask knights their names. I'll just, Did you think about that? I'll just know him when I see him. It'll be so perfect. Ugh. The final line of the bit I'm quoting directly. Sir Gawain heard all of this and wondered much, wishing that the night were already over. Yeah, so would I, bud. <laughs> yeah, so he's oh. like, this is just fucking wild. Just, I want to get out of here. Just let me go. Just, just get through it. Just get through it. Just get through it. Yeah. It'll be fine. <laughs> oh my gosh. But uh, the rest of the evening is quite pleasant and normal. It's mentioned that four of the Maiden's Knights are regularly out in the surrounding forest searching for Lancelot, Gowan, and Percival, as the Maiden has put a reward on their heads, so to speak. Yeah, yes, indeed. Quite literally. Oh my gosh. I am immediately going to integrate this this trap process for my players, I know, it's though. a good one. Because, think about it. an excellent trap. Think about it. You set your players in a room and it's like a tomb or whatever, or like a chapel or a holy space, and you're like, they, they look at it and they're like, yeah, okay, we just have to figure out how to complete the ritual. So if we just sit here and we like press this button or we like look over the holes and then next thing you know, make a deck save. I mean, you barely even have to give give it like uh, any dressing. You just have to say like, okay, there's, there are recesses in the walls mm-hmm. uh, and there's like candles lit inside them and amulets and stuff like you just have to say like yeah. there's stuff in there and one of them will say i searched the recess yeah i'm gonna dig my hand in there and check it out no and you just say oh how are you searching it and when they just and then you know how to what bits to cut off oof that's great that's brilliant thank you oh i also love that she has a guillotine i mean that's just baller like she has set up her plan she knows exactly what she's about she is more than 500 years ahead of her time with that one. She really is. Like I said, Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss. I mean, in, in many ways, this is impressive, but also... Terrifying. Yes. Anyway, after Mass the next morning, Gowan leaves, quote, with no pressing desire to return. I would say so. I feel like he ought to warn the other two if he ever runs into them. So Gowan leaves the castle, and he runs into two other knights. They're like, who are you? And he says, oh, I'm Gowan. And they're thrilled. They're like, oh, you're Gowan. You've got to come back with us to the castle of the Haughty Maiden. She would love to meet you. No. (laughs) You better run. Yeah, he declines. And they try to capture him by force. And he cuts off one of their arms and they run away. Deservedly. The narration shifts back to the castle of the Haughty Maiden, where said Haughty Maiden is alarmed at the state of her returning knights. I swear you you, you had all your arms when you left, and now you're missing. <laughs> Oops. They recount events, and the Haughty Maiden at once summons the other 15 knights who reside in the castle, promises them all land and wealth if they can bring back Gowan. Just as they're about to ride out, they encounter the other two knights who are out searching the forest, both sporting spear wounds on their torsos and reporting that they had also run into Gowan and tried to bring him back and he stabbed them. I love this. This is like the first daring escape that we have. It's pretty good. It's very good. I'm digging this. Okay. They estimate that Gowan is at least four leagues away by now, and one of the 15 knights opines that trying to catch him now would be pointless. The same knight also puts two and two together, and asks the wounded knights if Gowan had been carrying a red shield with a golden eagle. 
Yep, he certainly was. And it's here that the haughty maiden finally catches on to the problem with her approach. No kidding, lady. (sighs) Yes. She also realizes with regret that showing off her fancy guillotine trap was unwise, as now Gowan definitely knows not to come back and will probably warn the others. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> so, like, she just has this moment, she's like, oh, damn it. I, oh, mmm. She really went full Dr. Evil. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like, you're so dumb, lady, but I'm glad you're so <laughs> dumb because your machinations are actually really quite terrifying. Imagine how different, like, the Arthurian tale would be if Gowan, Lancelot, and Percival all ended up beheaded by some, like, random super fan. <laughs> That's horrific! I love it! <laughs> uh, it's the fanfic we didn't know we needed. Hey, you can put that on your list right after the uh, Fisher King slash Lady of the Lake one. Yeah! <laughs> oh no. The narration now, now goes back to Gowan, who's met a dog! Oh, that's nice, I hope. To quote, As he rode along, deep in thought, he heard somewhere in the forest ahead of him the sound of a dog barking, and it came running swiftly towards him. As it came near to Sir Gawain, it put its nose to the ground and found a trail of blood, which it followed down a grassy forest path. But when Gawain left the trail of blood, the hound scampered after him, barking, and made signs that he should follow it. He's having a lassie moment here, like Timmy's down the well. Yes, indeed. This is like the um, the foxes in Skyrim. If you follow the foxes, they'll take you like little secret areas, like caves and stuff. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's handy. So I, when I saw that in the movie Going in the Green Knight, I was like, oh, this makes total sense to me in my Skyrim brain. Man, I wonder if that was the inspiration. Because like, again, the fox in the poem is just a prop. It's just a fox. Yeah. Uh-huh. So who who even knows where that fox came from? Anyway, uh, Sir Gowan decides, okay, he doesn't want to leave the dog's trail, so he followed it at a swift pace, until he came to a marsh deep in the forest, and there, in the middle of a mere, he could see an old and crumbling house. He followed the hound over a rickety bridge, which spanned a wide stream, and came to the hall, a dilapidated building indeed. The hound stopped barking. In the middle of the hall, Sir Gowan saw a knight lying, speared through the body, dead. We found him! Yeah, you know, it might be. (laughs) Wait, we don't know? (laughs) I'm not actually sure if this is the same one. Like I said, there are a lot of speared knights in this. (laughs) Oh no. Uh, As Sir Gowan is taking all this in, the dog just brought me to this ruined manor with a dead guy in it. Great. Uh, A woman appears from a side chamber with a burial sheet. She at first does not return Gowan's greeting, but then notices the dead man's wounds have not resumed bleeding. Because he's dead. It was a medieval belief that a murdered man's wounds would bleed in the presence of his killer. Oh, that's right. It's a plot point in the first Cadvale book. For I was going to say, I remember that one. She was initially like very cold towards him. Like he says, hail and well met lady. And she's like, eh. And then she says, oh, body's wounds aren't bleeding. You're, you didn't kill him. You're fine. I can I can talk to you. Yeah. Well, actually, she talks to the dog at this point, and she tells the dog, I did not ask you to bring back this knight, but the one who slew this this knight who lies here. Uh, uh, <laughs> she sent out the dog to get a specific knight, but since he's a dog, like, he just brought back a knight, which honestly is pretty impressive in its own. Yeah, I mean, yes, very much. Is this a... I, see, I love these stories because we don't know whether this is, like, a mythical 
dog or talking dog or a normal dog. Like We have no idea. This is just a dog. Dawin asks if she knows who the killer was, and she does. She says the dead knight is her brother, and he was slain by Lancelot. Oh, so it's not. Yeah, different speared knight. Oh. But don't you worry. She is planning to gather her family and friends for a good old-fashioned blood feud. Nice. Revenge. Yes. It's always the right answer. (laughs) Gawain decides to just wish her luck and then immediately nope out of there. Quote, Praying to God that he might find Lancelot of the Lake. This is presumably because he wants to warn him that there are at least two women in this forest plotting his death. (laughs) I mean, I was going to say something about how, like, oh, this text is making, like, women crazy killers. But if we look at the overall trend of men and women in this tale, a lot of them are all crazy. And we also have, like, the three sisters of the cart who aren't that crazy. So it's a pretty good split for a medieval text. Yeah, everyone in this text is kind of psycho, I'm going to say. They really are. Whatever they're whatever they're eating in Camelot, do not recommend. Yeah, again, I'm I'm not convinced that like all of France wasn't permanently suffering from ergot poisoning for the whole medieval period. Yeah, no, this is wild. The narration also refers to this hall as the waste manor, which I think is pretty cool. Nice. But that's the end of chapter 4. All right. That took us a while. I really want to try and get through a little bit more. We'll see what we can do. Because our our goal is to try and get through three chapters, but we lost a lot of time. Yes, we did. No pressure. That evening, Gowan approaches, quote, a great chapel with a most splendid manor beside it. There is a fenced-in orchard by the chapel, and a hermit is leaning on the fence, looking into the orchard, laughing with joy. How Gowan identifies this man as a hermit, and indeed... Whether you can be a hermit in a most splendid manner with other people uh, is not addressed at this time. But, you know, they've all got the same, like, crinkly old robes. It's the uh, Ben Kenobi, yeah, you know, hermit robes. Yeah, when he's dressed like <laughs> Ben Kenobi and living, again, in a very nice house with other people. But he's like, no, I'm a hermit. Or at least Gowan is like, that guy's definitely a hermit. It's his class category. Yeah, I guess. He's got levels in hermit. <laughs> We should stat that up, actually. You know, I want to I wanna have levels in Hermit. Why can't I do that? I know, me too. This socialization I, I have said many thing. times, like, if I lived in medieval times, I would be a Hermit. I would have already chosen Hermitude <laughs> at least a decade ago. Yep. All right. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, the Hermit welcomes him and has a youth take Gowan's horse to the stable, then brings him to the orchard to see what he was looking at. In the orchard are two maidens, another youth, and a little boy. Riding a lion. I understand why he was looking. Yes. The hermit proceeds to bury the lead by saying, quote, Sire, you can see the joy I have in this child. Did you ever see one so fair of such an age? Bruh, he's riding a lion. (laughs) (laughs) Now, since this was written in the 13th century, Gowan does not hear the alarm bells that go off in our heads when religious figures talk about children being pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Instead, he just agrees, changes out of his armor, and watches the child continue to ride a lion. He just changes out of his armor right there? Yeah, I mean, I guess... Presumably, he's wearing some kind of undergarment. That's true. I mean, I guess he's, like, also at the manor. This isn't, like, outside the fence. At this point, the hermit decides to provide some context. Here we go. Nobody except that child can, quote, look after or master that lion. Where the lion came from is left unexplained, but... 
Cretien gave his knight Yvain a lion friend, so maybe this author is just accepting it as a genre convention. Anyway, this kid, he's a good kid, of noble descent, despite his father being cruel and wicked, for he is the son of Marin and Jezebel. <gasps> oh, it's coming back around. After his father killed his mother, he decided to move out and live with his uncle, the hermit. That's nice. The boy is seven, so that's some advanced decision making on his part. Okay, but I mean, it's the right decision, but like. Okay, but what? Like, it, when you realize daddy killed mommy, you don't really want to stay in that place. That's a that's a good job on his part to go like. I'm going to go live with my uncle. Smart yes. choice. True, very true. Impressive. He wants very much to meet Sir Gawain and eventually become his liegeman. Aww. Or his vassal. This all seems to imply that there's been an unacknowledged time skip somewhere. The story reads as though the incident with Marin the Jealous was just a couple days ago. Oh. Which would raise some questions about how long the boy has been here and how he arrived before Gawain. So it feels like at some point we jumped ahead and the story didn't mention it. Probably. Time is fake. Yeah, time is a four-corner square. Yes, indeed. Anyway, the hermit asks for any news of Sir Gawain, and Gawain gets to do the Obi-Wan gif thing, where he's like, of course I know him, he's me. <laughs> Yay! To quote, In faith, I have very reliable news of him. There is his shield and lance, and you will be lodging him in your house tonight. Oh, that's so snarky, I love it. The hermit introduces Gawain to the boy, whose name, it turns out, is Meliot, or possibly Melio, of Logres. Ah. Or Lojas, or prop, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Melio does homage to Gawain, and Gawain promises to come to Melio's aid when needed. Aww. At this point, we pretty much just skip ahead to Gawain leaving after morning mass, and then we get an acknowledged time skip. Okay. Quote, Sir Gawain rode so hard each day that he left the forest and the hermitage far behind and found himself in the most beautiful land in the world. Do we get a name for this land? No, I assume he's in, like, Jamaica. Nice. I was going to go with Avalon, but, you know. I mean, personally, I, I prefer the Carolina Lowcountry to virtually any other landscape, but I'm aware that that's not a majority opinion. That's fair. Anyway, here Gowan encounters a youth riding the other direction and stops to talk. The youth is named Joseus, and he tells us these things in this order. Oh, boy. One, his lord owns the forest that he has just left and that Gowan is headed towards. Two. His lord is the finest knight in the world, but is, quote, in distress, whatever that means in this context. Three, his lord is currently going by the name Par Louis Fett, and Joseus may not say anything of his whereabouts except that he is in the forest. Okay. Joseus' backstory is thus in his words. I shall never be happy until I can enter a hermitage to save my soul, for I have committed the greatest sin that anyone can commit. I have killed my mother, and a queen she was. Because she said that I would not be a king when my father died. She was going to make me a monk or a priest and have my younger brother inherit the kingdom. When my father knew that I had killed my mother, he went off into that forest and built a hermitage and abandoned his kingdom. But because of the crime I committed, I do not want to take his place and I have decided to go into exile like my father. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. Uh, and his father is King Pelis. Oh. Oh no. Yeah, we're also noted that he's of the same family of Par Louis Fett, who is, of course, Percival. Yes. And as established, uh, Pellis is Percival's uncle. So yeah, accurate. Also, he's new in town. After relating all this, Joseus fucks off and Gowan continues. Cool. Just, Thanks for the plot twist. Yeah, maybe it'll become important later. Exposition. He encounters an elderly hermit and a youth outside a nice uh, house and chapel combination. 
And as soon as they notice him, the hermit rushes up to speak with Gawain. Uh, and this hermit is, in fact, Pelis, by the way. Oh, good to know. Look, I'm sorry, but you need to sneak past this house very quietly. The finest knight in the world is lying inside sick. If he becomes aware that another knight is in here, he will insist on jousting him, and that's not going to help his recovery. Who is this knight? I call him Paul Wiefer. Can I see him? Did I stutter? No. Can you give him a message for me? Nope. What family is this knight from? He is from the lineage of Joseph of Arimathea. At this point, a maiden leans out from the chapel and calls to the hermit. He and the youth go in, leaving Gawain alone outside. We may remember from the genealogy that Iglesias is the niece of Joseph of Arimathea, so Gawain is like, okay, the, the sick knight is probably Iglesias' missing son, but he can't be 100% sure because that was a pretty vague answer. Yeah, that's true. There's another time skip, followed by quite a sight, so I'm going to quote a longer one. He rode away, most disturbed, and passed into the forest. But the story does not recount all the days he spent on the road, but simply tells how he wandered through many lands and kingdoms until he found himself in a beautiful, rich, and fertile land, in the middle of which stood a magnificent castle. He turned that way and rode towards it, and soon he could see the great wall that surrounded it and the strong castle gate. And lying in the middle of the gateway, he saw a lion, another one, chained to the wall. And on either side of the gate stood two ghastly figures of copper, which by an ingenious device could fling forth crossbow bolts with great strength and fury. Someone's built like little bolt traps on the sides of the portcullis. This guy was a natural-born DM. I know, right? I feel like this was just his campaign setting that he wrote down. A lot of this reads like D&D. Like, you could pull so much of this whole cloth. Like, straight, yeah. This is really impressive. Yeah, including a lot of the characters being, like, unacknowledged psychos. Yeah, that too. Seeing the lion at the gateway and those dread figures, Sir Gawain did not dare go any nearer. He looked along the top of the walls and saw people who seemed to be of the holy life. Priests dressed in albs and old white-haired knights dressed like monks or clerics, and on each of the battlements there was a cross. A chapel stood on the wall, and people were passing thither from a great hall in the castle, and on top of the chapel were three crosses with an eagle of gold on each one. I assume, like, a a metal eagle of gold, not like an eagle that happens to be gold in color. Probably. Okay, so really quick, just for our listeners, I looked up what an alb was because I was less familiar with it. And think of those, like, you know the little outfits that the choir boys wear, the little white ones? It's basically a monk's robe, but it's all white. Yes, alb is from white, etymologically. Yes, like Albion. Yes, like Albion. The priests and the knights on the wall knelt towards the chapel, and from time to time they would look up at the sky rejoicing, and it seemed as though they could see God and his mother on high. Sir Gawain sat watching from far off, not daring to approach the castle because of the figures that could shoot bolts with such fury that no armor could withstand them. I don't know how he knows that, but he just does. Maybe there was a live demonstration. Maybe someone went before him, or maybe the bodies are just left there. Your answer's better than mine. I was thinking like a big sign. It says, warning, shoots bolts. (laughs) With such force, no armor can withstand. (laughs) Oh no! But he could see no path to right or left. He would have to turn back or go on to the castle because he lives in a video game. He did not know what to do. (laughs) You're not wrong. But just then he looked ahead and saw a priest coming out of the gate. And they had the following chat. Here we go. So. Where am I? This is the entrance to the land of the Fisher King. Can I come in? 
Nope. Quest first. Bring us the sword with which John the Baptist was beheaded. Direct quote from the text. Gowan then says, Then I am in a sorry plight. Indeed. I mean, that is one heck of a quest. And again to quote, At that Sir Gowan rode off, so downcast and deep in troubled thought, that he forgot to ask in what land he would find the sword, or what was the name of the king who then possessed it. But he would know of the sword when it pleased God. Speedrun. Uh, Gowan continues for another unspecified time. I think the author caught on after introducing Melio of Logaris that they need to make the events of the story more clearly spaced out. I would hope so. So he starts, like, putting in these time skips. Anyway, he encounters a townsman, just says townsman, on a fine horse. The townsman expresses surprise that such a worthy knight should ride, quote, such a thin and scraggy horse. Oh, like that's mean! <laughs> yeah, and, and it's also kind of weird that, like, there's, like, critiquing of, oh, Gowan, you need a different horse. Because Gowan's one of the knights who has, like, a named horse. Yeah, it's, it's Gringolet, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Oh, no. So, like, th- this author apparently is not aware of that. Or maybe this was pre-Gringolay. Your timeline project is doomed to failure, I'm just going to tell you. You know, I know. But when, when his horse is criticized, Gowan responds, quote, There is nothing I can do about that. I will have another when it shall please God. That's a great, like, line to get out of something. Yeah, but it doesn't work, though, because the townsman likes this answer and wants to continue the conversation. So he asks Gowan where he's going. Gowan explains about the sword, and the townsman is quite concerned. It turns out he's familiar with this quest, because Gowan is just the most recent of many who have passed by looking for this sword, but none of them ever return. Yay! I was hoping for this. The sword, you see, is in the possession of a wicked, cruel, and horror of horrors, non-Christian king by the name of Gurgaron. <laughs> That's a heck of a name. I know. Gurgaron. In addition to providing this helpful info, he strikes a deal with Gowan. He will swap horses with him, because the townsman has a nice horse, if Gowan promises to let him see the sword after he gets it. I feel like that's a bad deal, given that he knows that Gawain's not coming back. It's, yeah, it does sound like it's a bad deal for the townsman, because yeah. he's like, hey, you can have my horse. Like, I've watched a bazillion people come through here and never come back, but, you know, I'll still give you my horse. That just seems like a bad idea. It does. I don't know, Gowan goes for it, he doesn't see a downside. Because, again, the author doesn't know that Gowan is supposed to have, like, a special horse, so he's just got regular horses, and he's fine swapping them around. (laughs) Aw. You've reached a new checkpoint. You've upgraded. Yeah. That evening, he arrives at a super fancy pavilion. And I'm going to give you a quote so you know how fancy it is. Ooh, yes, let's go. In the middle of the forest, he came across a wide clearing through which a stream flowed from a spring, and looking towards the head of the clearing, right at the edge of the woods, he could see a great tent with ropes of silk and pegs of ivory to fix them in the ground, and golden pommels on the tent poles with an eagle of gold on top of each. The sides of the tent were white, and the drapes around the top were of a rich silken cloth like red samite. Sir Gawain rode up and dismounted at the door. He took off his horse's bridle and set it free to graze, and propping his shield and lance outside the tent, he took a look inside. He could see a rich couch of silken cloth and gold, with a silken sheet on top as fine as white linen, and on top of that lay a coverlet of ermine and green samite with drops of gold, and at the head there lay two pillows, the finest ever seen. I don't know who's cataloging fine pillows. So sweetly perfumed that the tent seemed filled with a balmy fragrance. 
All around the couch, rich silken cloths were spread on the ground, and on either side of the head of the couch was an ivory chair with cushions of gold cloth, and fine they were. And above the foot of the couch hung a golden candlestick which held a great candle. A table had been set in the middle of the tent, of ivory it was, and edged with gold and precious stones, and a cloth had been laid upon it with a silver trencher and knives with ivory handles and rich golden plate. So everything is just blinged out. Yeah, no kidding. That's a lot of ivory. Yes. That's like an entire elephant's worth of ivory. Yeah, jeez. Gowan enters the tent and meets another dwarf, which means Warwick Davis needs to disguise. So what would you like to make Warwick Davis wear? Uh, hmm... How about one of those really floppy Jingle Bell hats? Yes, okay. Warwick Davis is wearing a floppy Jingle Bell hat. Just because, like, that's such a, like, medieval idea in my head, is those really big long hats that just flop over, and you can kind of use it as a scarf, and it's got a big fat bell on the end of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know the ones you mean. Now. Yeah! Yes, ex- excellent. Gowan is initially skeptical, because he's racist, and he recalls the last time he met Warwick Davis, but he shrugs it off, and Warwick helps him out of his armor. He's generally very hospitable. And then he has two youths bring Gowan dinner. While he is eating, two maidens come in, and the elder of the two speaks. Are we talking about, like, an elder maiden as in, like... Because maiden is typically, in the medieval world, analogous with virgin. So is this, like... They're both young women. There's just an elder one and a younger one. Okay, I was like, is this 40-year-old virgin, or, like, how are we... This is not Granny Weatherwax. Okay, cool. Here we go. May God give you the power and the strength tomorrow to destroy the evil custom of this tent. Oh, there's an evil custom? Yes, it is both evil and non-specific. What is your name? Gowan. Oh, we've heard of you. Not only are we confident in your ability to destroy the evil custom, but we would also like you to... Direct quote. Choose tonight which of the two of us will please you most. Um, thanks. I've had a long day, though, so would you mind if I just go to bed? There was no way for me to summarize this that's better than the text, so here's the next, like, action. At that he rose, and as he was tired, he made his way back to the couch, where the maidens attended him as he lay down. Then they sat down before him, lit the candle, and rested on the couch, offering him their service. Sir Gowan made no reply, except to thank them, for his only thought was to sleep and rest. This guy's no fun. The real Gowen would be fun. Warwick, keep an eye on this guy, whoever he is. And with that, they leave. That's incredibly presumptuous, and I'm kind of digging it. Yeah, they're like this the whole time. They're like, all right, so Gowen, naughty adventures, and he's like, I'm not into it right now. Holy quest. I mean, this is a departure from his normal attitude. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, you can't blame them for not thinking it's Gawain. Yeah, they do seem very convinced it's not him. Gawain would want to have fun with us. Yeah, they call him an imposter. Aww. (laughs) The next morning, Warwick helps Gawain put his armor back on and informs him that the maidens are upset with him. But Gawain isn't particularly put out by this. As he exits the tent, two knights show up and demand payment for his night's lodging. Before it can be explained what this payment entails, like... Do you just want money? How much? Like, none of this. The maidens likewise show up out of nowhere and insist that Gowan fight these two knights in order to break the vague yet evil custom. Okay. The fight begins with commentary and advice from the sidelines. And there's, again, no way for me to summarize this properly. So it's all gone into dialogue. And we have a long dialogue. Yes. 
the false Sir Gawain is doing better than he did last night. Sir Gawain, having downed knight number one already, approaches him with sword drawn. Knight number one speaks. Have mercy! I surrender! No! You have to kill him! Direct quote from knight number one. Just listen to her great disloyalty. There is nothing in the world she seemed to love so much as she loved me, and now she condemns me to death. Yes, I do. Kill him. Gowen kills him. Knight number two attacks. They fight. Warwick has a direct quote. Damsels, your Gawain is fighting well. He will indeed be our Gawain henceforth, if he is willing. Knight number two is on the ground with his arm broken, and he says, Mercy! I surrender! Kill him! You've got to! Stab him in the foot! It's the only way! Direct quote from knight number two. Damsel, your love for me has turned to hatred. Never should a knight trust in a maiden's love. Gawain, confused, backs off. Knight number two manages to get back on his horse and ride away. He's going to get help! Quick! Go kill him! Gawain chases him down and kills him by stabbing him through the foot. Then he returns. Good job. He was descended from Achilles, in case you were wondering about the foot thing. Huh. How about that? So, which of us do you want? Um, listen. Good luck with everything, You're leaving? I've got this quest thing. I'm kind of busy. Let him go. He is the most foolish knight in the world. Frankly, I'm disappointed in this outcome. Gawain rides off, presumably wondering if he really defeated an evil custom or just assisted in a really rough breakup. And that's the end of chapter five. <gasps> oh no! And that's two hours. And yes. chapter six is long, so Oof. I don't think we're going to be able to tackle it. Let's do that next time then. Yeah. I do definitely want like the terrible breakup to be a quest though, because that's, that's pretty good. That, that's clearly what was happening, Oh, right? 100%. <laughs> it makes no sense otherwise. Like, they just decided, like, okay, we need to break up with these guys, but, like, all the knights in this world are psychos, so we can't just tell them. So we need to get another knight to kill them. And it worked. Yeah, it worked. Oh, my gosh. I'm impressed. In this tent, there is an evil custom. I am still dating Rick, and I don't like him. <laughs> he did me dirty. Therefore, I'd like you to kill him. And then afterwards, we can have at it, if you like. Like, oh boy. Yeah, they're they're into that plan. They, like, really, it's like, it, at that point, is Gawain even a rebound? Like, what do you call that? I don't know. That's just so crazy. It's like... Like, what, what do you call it if, like, the person you're cheating with and your rebound and the hitman you hire to kill your current squeeze are the same person? I mean... Because that's what Gawain is here. I would call it a soap opera, but <laughs> apparently it's just a medieval text is what we're learning. Yeah. That's incredible. Oh, man. All right. Do you want to do a um, leech's corner just to round it out? I just figure since we usually have something at the end. Yeah, we, I feel like we should have something here. Yeah, let me see if I have a short leech's corner. Welcome to the leech's corner. This is a... Cure for a mist before the eyes. Ooh, interesting. And this is from Leech Book 3. So this is the one that's less classical influence. So here's how they think that you can cure, like, I don't know if it's cataracts or just bad eyesight or something like that. Yeah, yeah. What you do is mingle together a crab's gall and a salmon's 
and an eels, and field bees' honey. Smear the eyes inwardly with the salve. Ooh, yuck. That's it. That's that's the whole advice, is mix together fluids from a crab, a salmon, and an eel, all together with honey, and then just put it in your eyes, under the eyelids. Get it right in there. Oh, I wonder what that would actually do. Like, please, nobody actually try this, because this one actually genuinely sounds like you could get an infection. Yeah, I'm sure you could get an infection. <laughs> Ooh. Well, honey has anti antibacterial properties. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's why it's in there. Oh gosh, yeah, but that's not gonna that's not gonna get rid of like having fish no, guts I don't think it's in your enough. eye. <laughs> Ooh, that's nasty. I also want to know how you get a crab's gall. Like, how do you find the gall in a crab? Squeeze, squeeze it. Squeeze what bit? Like, you'd have to take. There's lots of fluids in crabs. There's lots of fluids in all animals. How do you know if you're getting the right fluids? That's that's true. Like, what kind of crabs do you think they're getting? King crabs or, like, itty-bitty crabs? I was picturing, like, a blue crab. Ooh, yeah, that's good. I don't even know if you get those on the on that coast of the Atlantic. I don't know what kind of crabs you get in England. Yeah, I'm more familiar with, like, the massive king crabs, because, like, Alaska and Pacific. But I feel like that's not... That would be easier to dissect and, and get the fluids from, but... Looks like the most important and probably therefore the one they're talking about in English fisheries is the brown crab, also called the edible crab. So presumably it's this is the one that they would eat. Right. Well, either way, please don't try this one. Yeah. That's pretty gross. Look, if you know how to get a crab's gall, like, don't, but tell us, because I'd like to know what yeah. that's about. Yeah, exactly. Or like if or you have, salmons. yeah, like if you or have a lot eels. of good fishing experience and you know how to exactly cut there, then because in my fishing experience, I know how to gut and fillet a fish, but I don't keep any of that inside stuff. We use that as chum to get more fish, so I, I wouldn't know how to get that stuff. I know how to catch a crab because we used to do that when I visited family down in South Carolina. Right, catch them in the marshes, but I don't know how to prepare a crab. Don't know what the bits are. Other than how to recognize what sex the crab is and whether it's carrying eggs. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, there is a new nightmare for you. If the guillotine wasn't enough, there's also crab salve. I don't know why the crab is the one that sticks out to me. I just like crabs. Alrighty. Well, I guess that closes this one out. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Uh, something I that I, using the Maniculum account, retweeted just like earlier this week is someone posting... Basically, I'm reading the Mort Arthur, and I think that you could replace every knight with an angry territorial rooster, and the plot would be exactly the same. I now need an animated series of just, like, it, everyone's, everyone is a farm animal, and all the knights are roosters. And I need all the cock jokes.
<laughs> of course. All of, of them. Course. I mean, the lances are already getting us halfway there. Oh, no. Not the lances. 